The horizon leans forward, offering you space to place new steps of change. Here, on the pulse of this fine day, you may have the courage to look up and out and upon me, the rock, the river, the tree, your country, no less to Midas than the mendicant, no less to you now than the mastodon then. Here, on the pulse of this new day, you may have the grace to look up and out and into your sister's eyes and into your brother's face, your country, and say simply, very simply, with hope, good morning. Welcome to 10 Minutes on Democracy. That clip was from Maya Angelou's recitation of On the Pulse of Morning at the first inauguration of President Bill Clinton on January 20th, 1993. With her public recitation, Angelou became the second poet in history to read a poem at a presidential inauguration after Robert Frost's recitation at JFK's inauguration years before. I'm Jason Franklin, Senior Advisor at One for Democracy, and today is Tuesday, March 7th. I think about what's been going on this last week. Let's first start with the pillar of democracy around increasing civic and democratic participation. Really, we're thinking about how do you make it harder to vote? We're seeing news out of both Georgia and Texas that are really actually voter suppression. They're making it harder to participate in our democracy. In Georgia, GOP legislators have moved to ban private donations to support local election officials, to ban drop boxes, making it harder to drop off your vote and have moved to expand the ability of citizens to challenge voting eligibility of other citizens, raising the threat of mass disenfranchisement and intimidation, and also placing additional strain on local election officials who might have to respond to hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of mass challenges of other people's eligibility with little checks and balances on why and when you can challenge. Over in Texas, you're seeing legislation move forward to restore felony penalties for and expand the prosecutable standard of determining intent in the cases of illegal voting. Basically, what this means is it could lead to criminalization of voters who did not know they were ineligible to vote, changing the dynamics of intent to really say, if you mess up, even if you didn't know or mean to mess up, you could be subject to felony penalties. Uh, Really another intimidation tactic. If you're not sure if you're allowed, Why would you risk a felony? Maybe you just won't vote at all. So things to continue to kind of monitor and eventually to push back against in litigation. There's a lot of organizing underway to stop these threats in Georgia and Texas and elsewhere. When you think about election administration, really the news of the week is questions around how do you manage and support elections nationally? There's two different stories kind of bubbling up right now. One, as the Washington Post has been reporting, is threats from Republican-led states to pull out of the Electronic Registration Information Center, ERIC, which is under attack by election deniers. ERIC is the database that shares voter data and allows every state to keep its voter rolls updated. And at a time where you know hyperpolarization over voting is so rampant, it has been a success story. You know, that over 30 states have participated in in ERIC and kept their voter rolls updated. But now you've got election deniers in Florida, Missouri, and West Virginia all announcing they're pulling out of ERIC 
after Alabama and Louisiana did recently. If you see too many states pull out, it really undermines their ability to keep their voter rolls free. And really what it is is setting up a stance to be able to say, look, we can't trust our ballots because they've done it themselves to reduce the trust in their voter rolls. Therefore, we need to have tighter internal state regulations on how do you maintain your active status on the registration list. The other piece coming out nationally around elections administration is this week, Secretary of Homeland Security announced $2 billion in funding for eight fiscal year preparedness grant programs, which includes money for election security as determined by state's elections officials. So that's money to help prevent, protect against, and respond to acts of terrorism, which include acts of trying to disrupt elections. So there's money coming from the federal government down to the states, although many are noting that it's not nearly enough money for the level of threat and pressure facing state election officials. On the front of you know democratic norms and institutions, the big kind of conversation this week is how do we enforce election laws? Um, you're seeing two different kind of stories emerging, these from Arizona and from Georgia. In Arizona, the new attorney general, Democratic attorney general, is changing the mandate of the state's election fraud unit. So under former Republican uh, attorney general, Mark Bronovich, there was accusations from Democrats that he was using the election fraud unit for whatever was politically expedient, especially the investigation into Maricopa County's election and then burying the results because they proved that there was no election fraud in Maricopa County. Now, Republicans are making a similar complaint, saying that as Democratic Attorney General Chris Mays is using the election fraud unit to combat voter suppression and protect election officials from harassment, that she's using it for politically expedient reasons. Indeed, she's actually commented herself that she doesn't think the unit should even exist, but you're seeing this back and forth. When you don't have real election fraud and you have an election fraud unit, what does it investigate becomes a question of the moment and really at the whims of whoever holds the attorney general position. That's been a challenge in other states as well in the kind of ongoing debate. What does it mean to create these type of enforcement units? The other thing we're seeing in Georgia is that the state house has approved a bill that is now moving over to the state Senate around creating a new state board that could punish or oust sitting district attorneys, which is largely seen as a response to the ongoing Fulton County investigation into Trump's attempt to overturn the election in Georgia. So new state regulation or state oversight of district attorneys trying to limit their ability essentially to enforce elections disputes, but really could be used to uh, limit their ability to enforce anything that might have a political overtone. So real questions of who and how you enforce election laws and other laws impacts the actual process of voting itself. And then the last thing to pay attention to this week, when we think about kind of developments in democracy, particularly in this uh, area around media and information ecosystem, is who should be held responsible for the spread of disinformation. Two stories, again, developing on this front. First, you've probably heard about, but Rupert Murdoch's deposition has, uh, parts of it have been released in the ongoing lawsuit that is being brought by Dominion Voting Systems against Fox. He admits to prioritizing content on the stolen election that Fox News anchors knew not to be true. And the claims and how Fox News handled it are at the heart of the defamation lawsuit 
an earlier filing showed another kind of big piece where Tucker Carlson actually had sent a text saying Sidney Powell is lying about having evidence of voter fraud, even as he then went on air talking about the evidence that Sidney Powell said she had. And so this ongoing back and forth around who was responsible, who should be held responsible, is really at the core. Similarly, a question of who should be held responsible is coming up in the oral arguments before the Supreme Court in Gonzalez v. Google, where the Supreme Court appeared pretty hesitant to overrule aspects of Section 230, which are the protections that say any social media platform is a platform, and they are not responsible for what is said on their platform. They are not publishers of that content. If you remove that, those protections, then Google or Facebook, Meta, Twitter, others would be held responsible for misinformation or disinformation published on their systems. And they would have to be much more engaged in regulation and protection and moderation of the content. So both these lawsuits around Fox News and the Gonzalez v. Google lawsuit ways really testing who should be held responsible when lies are spread. If either of these come back, if Fox News is held responsible or if Section 230 protections are reduced and Google is held responsible, you'll see really massive shifts in how disinformation spreads and who's going to be financially prioritized and incentivized to make sure it doesn't. So could have big implications or could be continuations of business as usual, but things to be on the lookout for in the coming weeks. So that's all for this week's review of American Democracy. I look forward to talking with you again next week. And until then, take care.